live from the JLE in London. Join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. And welcome back, Rabbi Tatz. Just want to apologize to the listeners. We've been taking a bit of a break. Welcome back from your travels in South Africa. Hope you had a wonderful time. Um, we did actually plan what to talk about in this series, but I think we thought we'd take a bit of a break due to the passing of Queen Elizabeth and passing over to her son, King Charles, who will now be called His Majesty. And there have been requests, and people are curious to hear your thoughts, Rabbi Tetz, from a Jewish perspective, what we should feel when the passing of a monarch, someone that we all grew up with, and we don't really remember a time in history without, if you could just give us your thoughts on it. Yes, first of all, thank you for starting our series again. It's a pleasure to talk to you on these podcasts, uh, Rabbi Manor. Thank you. Yes, um, we have very, very specific thoughts about the monarchy. So let me speak a little bit more about the concept of kings and queens and the monarchy in general. We'll begin by doing what you suggested, of course, just a word about Queen Elizabeth herself, who elicited great admiration from most of the world. There's some exceptions like colonial issues that have to be discussed separately, but in terms of the duty as she perceived her duty, there's no question she was a very dedicated and dignified and refined individual with with a very sure political touch, a light touch, I would say, knowing what not to get into and to carry the dignity of the royalty in an exemplary fashion. One of the things that strikes us about her is, I would say, the discrepancy between her dignity and, I would say, unbroken record of refinement and dignity and the future generations. I'm not referring to anyone in particular of her successor's generation, but it's unavoidable observation that the difference between her as a personality and probably also her forebears, those who came before her, and those who come after her children, for example, you see immediately a different level of, I would say, personal happiness, marital togetherness. That's quite striking here, and one can't help feeling a change in level in some way from her generation to the next. Of course, we all hope that King Charles will be an exemplary monarch and live up to his mother's standards in every way. But I think this transition gets us thinking about a fundamental point relating to monarchy in general. So let me tell you what it is. And I'll begin with an observation that I once had the privilege of sharing with Rav Nachman Bulman, one of the great thinkers of the last generation. I put to him a certain thesis, which in fact he agreed with, and he was a very, very deep thinker and uh, a teacher to many of us. The observation begins, the theme here begins with the observation that kings and queens do exist in the world today, but they're powerless. Let me explain what I mean, and then we'll see where that leads us. The monarchy in the Western world today has fallen into disuse or to irrelevancy. That means that kings and queens no longer have life and death power. They, however, do exist. So we have an interesting observation here. We're not talking about the passage from monarchy to no monarchy. We're not talking about the passage from a feudal system where the king or queen was in power to a system of democracy where they no longer exist. Rather, we're talking about a transition from an era in which kings and queens had life and death absolute power to a generation in which kings and queens do exist, but they're powerless. That's a very interesting thing. 
And most people don't even know that there are many countries in Europe today that have a king or a queen. Spain, Belgium, Denmark, Holland, Britain, of course. There are countries which do indeed have a king or a queen. But very interestingly, that king or queen is totally powerless. They're merely a rubber stamp for democratic government. They're a figure of, a figure of uh, a figurehead for the state. They have a nominal power. They are ceremonial, largely. Um, they're looked up to as ceremonial ceremonial heads, but they have absolutely no power, and they certainly do not, do not have life and death power. What does this mean in Jewish terms? How do, we, how do we approach an observation like that? The concept seems to be, one word of background here, you know that to be fit to be called a king or queen in Jewish law, the requirement is life or death power. For example, let me give you a practical example. We have a blessing that we say on seeing a king. One particular blessing we see on seeing a non-Jewish king or queen, and one blessing we see on saying a Jewish king. The difference between the two blessings is slight, subtle, but very important. When it comes to a non-Jewish king, we say, Blessed is God who has given of his glory to flesh and blood. When it comes to a Jewish king, we say, Who has shared his glory with flesh and blood. A subtle difference in that for another time, perhaps we could discuss the difference. Nevertheless, it is a blessing that we make on seeing royalty. To be more accurate, we make it on the trappings of royalty. For example, if you see the royal coach going by with all of the entourage and so forth, even if one doesn't see the king himself or the queen herself, one can make the blessing. The reason being, of course, that the blessing is made on the glory and majesty, not so much the persona of the king. We say, who have given or shared of his glory, kavod, we say. The requirement here, however, to make the blessing is that the king one is observing must have life and death power. In the ancient world, of course, that was the measure of a king's dominion, that he had life and death power. He could kill, he could pardon, right, from a life sentence. There's an interesting debate about whether the American president, one can make a blessing on the American president. I remember being in Israel at the time, an American president visited, and I was living in a, in a settlement overlooking the main Tel Aviv-Jerusalem highway, and of course the highway was closed as the presidential procession made its way up to Jerusalem. When we were all standing there, the question we were all asking was, do we make a blessing or not? On the one hand, the American president has far more power than most kings and queens today, but he doesn't have absolute life and death power. There are halachic opinions that he does have life and death power in as much as he can unilaterally commute a death sentence. So someone on death row in the United States the president has the power of pardoning a death sentence. That is, in a certain way, a life and death power. He can't condemn someone to death unilaterally, but perhaps that would be enough. That's a learned halachic debate centering around the question of a king's life and death power. Now, if the definition of the royalty that we need to satisfy in order to make a blessing requires the absolute power of life and death, then it's very striking that kings and queens today not only do not have life and death power, they have no power at all. What lies behind this? And I would like to suggest to you, and again, I'm speaking for myself and have Rabuma's approval here, the concept seems to be this. We have a very interesting notion in halachic and Torah thinking in general that there's a deep parallel between human kingship and divine kingship. The expression you find is malchusid or malchusid which means the royalty on earth is ka'en malchusid parallels the divine royalty. And there are many parallels. There are even some practical parallels. That means that, for example, just for example, when one is undergoing divine judgment, speaking about Rosh Hashanah, which is coming up soon, when one stands in judgment, how does one picture the judgment? We have sources in our sages, among our sages, that tell us, if you wish to picture in some way, graphically, what the divine judgment will be like, picture yourself standing in a human court. 
There is, after all, an accusation, a charge. There is your opportunity to defend yourself. There are character witnesses you can bring. In the divine case, there are your mitzvahs, which speak in your favor. There are character witnesses speaking against you. They are your sins. And of course, we know what they do. They shuffle into the courtroom, you know, black and malodorous with your face, of course. <laughs> this is not frivolous. We know that every action causes an angel to be created. Your mitzvahs cause angelic, beautiful angelic creatures, and they speak for you. Your sins create very grotesque spiritual creatures, and they speak against you. And then, of course, there's a prosecution and a defense, and this all is what goes on in the higher judgment. Then, of course, there's a sentencing. Then there's an opportunity to appeal. Let's call that tshuva. And then there is a, um, set, a execution of sentence, and you can appeal for clemency. The things that happen in a human court are very much teaching us parallels for what happens in the divine realm. So we have a very, very interesting parallel between Hashem's rule as a king and rule on earth. What could be a better time to talk about this than Rosh Hashanah, which focuses on one thing absolutely exclusively, and that is God's rulership or kingship of the world. Now, here's the application to the modern world. We notice that in the higher world, Hashem is an absolute ruler, and of course he rules by dint of the population accepting him, right? We say, Ein melech there's no king without a nation. And of course in Jewish thinking, the nation accepts the king. Of course we accept the king in an absolutely binding fashion. When we said we will accept you as our king at Sinai, of course that becomes binding throughout history. But we accept the king. And then the king rules over us. In the human domain, the king has authority and he rules over the people. And in an, in an absolute system, he has life and death power. What does it mean to us when we observe kings and queens existing but without life and death power? We see them also being made a mockery of. You know, it would be one thing if we no longer had kings and queens. But we do have kings and queens, but they're made a mockery of. What does that mean? That means to take a king, the very concept means absolute power. And we have today kings and queens who have no power at all, who are completely at the beck and call of a democratic government, right? And are required simply to rubber stamp. I mean, very deeply, that is, a, that is a very pervasive humiliation if you understand what kings and queens should be. Mm. And here's the secret. Since the divine kingship is paralleled on earth, when God's rule is made a mockery of, it's reflected by kings and queens in the world. When God is no longer powerful, when he's seen as a concept that you can take or leave, you can speak disparagingly about him, you can... It's not that the world ignores God today. If the modern world, the modern atheistic world, ignored God, that would be one thing. And I suggest to you that they did, there'd be no kings and queens on earth because they'd also be ignored. But they don't do that. They take God and they, they say the most disparaging things about him. It's as if to say that God is sitting in this marketplace, you know, in the old, the old style with his head and hands in the stocks, and people throwing tomatoes at him, saying whatever they want. That's the, that's the position, unfortunately to which divine respect has been reduced. And when that happens, when humans relate to God that way, then humans are condemned to live in a world where their kings and queens are also simply uh, empty, empty figures that you can... That you, and today you have debates in England, should we do away with the monarchy? You know, there have been people saying we should do away with the monarchy, we should use Buckingham Palace now for a... Homeless shelter. A, make it a homeless shelter indeed. And those others are saying, no, no, we need the monarchy because it's an effective tourist attraction. I mean, how embarrassing is that, right? How embarrassing is that? And therefore, in summary, I would suggest to you, the reason that we have monarchs today who are utterly powerless, completely empty, puppet figures is because that's how the Western world relates to God. I would add just one word if I may. There are places on earth today where God is respected. And in those countries, the kings have absolute power. And I'm referring to the Arab countries. 
In the Arab countries where God is paramount in an extreme fashion, where people are ready to give their lives at a moment's notice, right, for the God as they conceive him, he has absolute power. And in those countries, the kings have li- absolute life and death power, as we all know. And I would suggest to you that that parallel is also based on the same theme. This is what I once suggested to and he said that this was a, a correct Fascinating. Idea. Wow. Why do you think that they're powerless, like you say, but yet... You look at the whole world's mourning, it seems odd that we, we feel so connected and they're sort of irrelevant. Why do you feel people feel this way? I think there are two reasons for this. One is that she was an exemplary personality. Queen Elizabeth was an exemplary personality. And if you think of a long life of many, many decades, never putting a foot wrong. Again, I'm not talking about the, the political issues that, that, that the colonials might, might say. I'm talking about within the parameters that, she, that were set up for her, right? never to put a foot wrong with a political statement or to do something undignified or um, also with a sparkling sense of humor, not afraid to let her hair down occasionally where, you know, she, she was already exemplary in that. You know, she once walked into a shop to buy something and the young girl there looked at her repeatedly and said to her you, you look so much like the queen the queen said that's very reassuring <laughs> you know and of course it's well known I saw an interview with one of her personal I think they call the equerries like a sort of what we might call a bodyguard he was walking with her in Scotland on one of the estates that she frequented which was open to the public and as they were they're walking across the heath a Canadian couple walk up to them of course a Canadian couple had no idea what the queen Apparently, you know, no, didn't enter their mind that she might be the queen. And they met this couple and they said to the, the queen and her, her bodyguard, they said, do you come here often? So they said, the queen said, yes, we come here. So, said, so they said to the queen, have you ever seen the queen? So she said, no, but he has, <laughs> indicating, you know, Dick has. So they said, that's right. He said, they gave her the camera. They gave the queen the camera and they said, you have to take a picture of us with Dick who's seen the queen, you know. And she, you know, quietly took a picture of them. She said, I would love to be a fly on the wall when they get home and discover, you know. So she had a, a sparkling sense of humor and... Um, she did her job, you know. If you if you measure a person's greatness by well how well they did their job, within the parameters of the job, as it as it's given, she certainly did that. So I think that's one that's one reason. The other is that there is still an admiration for the trappings of royalty, particularly in Britain. You know, in Britain, which is the country of pomp and ceremony, right? It is the country of 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 uh, pomp and circumstance and and dignity and the trappings of royalty. That is. Um, still awakens, you know, those feelings. And I would suggest that, that among Americans as well, who formally have rejected all that formality, there's still a hankering after the mother country that they came from with all its trappings of, <laughs> of royalty as well. So I think these are some of the issues that are, I think to sum it up, I would say that despite all this, the scandals and all the unfortunate things that have happened to various generations of the royal family, despite all that, there's still an inkling of awareness that royalty represents something divine. Yeah. I also find it fascinating how we, even though we're very cynical people, we still have such an appreciation of tradition. And you can see how they're dressed, sometimes fascinatingly, announcing the king and doing very odd ceremonies. And people are standing there in respect, and we're cynics at heart. But it seems like beneath, we still have that sense of tradition that you wouldn't have thought so. Thank you very much, Rabbi Tetz. That was a, a one-off special, and I very much enjoyed it, appreciated the insight, and we hope to continue and resume regular recording next week. Thank you. Thank you.